Welcome to episode two of Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Kukaji and I'm your host. Our subject is discernment and our aim is to teach, to elevate your minds and to exalt your courage, to accelerate and animate your industry and activity, and to excite in you an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. Our mission is to inspire young men and women and their parents to understand the present in order to prepare for the future, a task that necessarily demands a proper interpretation of the past. Our aim is to highlight the antithesis between the way of the Lord and the ways of the world, between the truth of Scripture and the opinions of men, so that we might reflect the light of life in a culture of death. As detailed in Episode 1, the title of our program draws its inspiration from Scripture, in particular the accounts found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where Jesus rebukes his accusers for their unbelief, calling them hypocrites for depending on God's revelation to predict the weather, while ignoring God's revelation to interpret the signs of the times. Last week, I promised that we would explore this assertion in future episodes, so let me do that now as a preamble to our program today. When we explain that everyone, including the unbeliever, depends on God's revelation to interpret the weather, someone will surely say, that's not true. There are millions of atheists who can predict the weather and accurately without relying on God's revelation. To this, we must respond, well, what are they doing? Not what do they say or profess to be doing, but what are they actually doing? In this case, what is necessary to predict the weather? What's required to predict anything? Well, among other things, a prediction presupposes universal, invariant, and immaterial concepts, like cause and effect, the regularity and uniformity of matter and nature, and the correlation of the future to the past. As Christians, we can rationally defend and explain each of those concepts. We can give an account, for example, for why we go into the lab to look for a cure for cancer. Because laboratory experiments and the scientific method itself, with its dependence upon the uniformity of matter and cause and effect, among other things, depends upon a consistent natural order that can be coherently accounted for only in a Christian worldview. In other words, if God is who he claims to be in Scripture, and if we are who he tells us we are, and if the universe is as he identifies it and describes it to us in Scripture, and if all things are indeed held together according to the counsel of his will, we can look at the color of the sky, take the temperature of the atmosphere, analyze the clouds and the winds, and measure the barometric pressure to formulate a prediction of the coming weather. But an atheist or anyone whose ultimate commitments are not rooted in Christ's declaration of himself in Scripture and his revelation of the nature of all things, is unable to provide a philosophically coherent reason for these things. An atheist can, of course, review historical weather patterns and use those patterns to forecast future weather, but the atheist cannot explain why the future should resemble the past. An atheist can measure very low barometric pressure to predict a violent storm, yet outside of the framework of a universe held together by the counsel of God's will, the unbeliever cannot account, that is, according to a world in which there is no God, for why he even thinks in terms of cause and effect. We could break this down in further detail, but for now it's important to acknowledge that the unbeliever, despite all of his denials and claims to the contrary, actually operates in and according to our worldview. 
unless God is at back of everything, governing both the natural order and holding together the immaterial, invariant universal concepts upon which everyone relies to explain the natural world and everything else, we couldn't know anything. This is why you'll hear me repeat on this program that knowledge of God is inescapable. Everyone knows God in the sense that everyone uses, indeed must use, these universal, immaterial, yet necessary concepts in order for anything to be intelligible. The only difference is that while believers admit these things and humbly give credit to the Father for revealing such things in Christ to us for our good and for His glory, the unbeliever pretends otherwise, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as it says in Romans, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their minds became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. I hope this provides a framework for a better understanding of why Jesus confronted the unbelieving Sanhedrin for taking for granted God's orderly governance of the natural world, that is, the weather, and their ability to understand and predict it, while pretending that God's governance of the moral world through the claims of Christ, his self-declaration of deity and lordship over all, as plainly set forth in the word, required more evidence or, quote, proof to be believed. When we return, we'll be joined in the studio by friends and some former students of mine who volunteered to enter what we have dubbed the Offices of Hypothesis, a virtual room for our listeners, but a real room here in the studio wherein we confront the ultimate questions. There are citizens in Tennessee working to reclaim the practice of self-governance in our state and ensure that a constitutional, Republican form of government is preserved to future generations. We are Tennessee Stands. Do you want to get off the sidelines and learn how to stand for liberty in your community? Join us at TennesseeStands.org and on social media at Tennessee Stands. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologist, a weekly squidget devoted to the topic of discernment. I am your host, Kevin Cookagee, and today we are joined by three young guests whose real names and identities shall remain confidential, but whose stage names are... Winnie. Hogan. And Roger. Winnie, as, as distinguished from Lucy. Right, yes. Winnie. <laughs> Winnie. Hogan. Hogan's heroes. Yes. And Roger, like Roger that. Well, welcome, and welcome back to our studio. Thanks again to your parents and families for allowing us to borrow your time. We are now going to enter for the first time the... Offices of Hypothesis. This week's hypothesis is... Only when you believe what is true can you see things as they really are. Again, only when you believe what is true can you see things as they really are. Start with Roger. True or false? True. I'm going to say true. Hogan? True. True. Gorn. <laughs> ah, the answer is right. Okay, now comes the hard part. Why or why not? But to help you, to help you get to that answer, I wanted to introduce the topic of a 
very famous and well-known nursery rhyme or fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood. What can Little Red Riding Hood teach us about only when you believe what is true can you see things as they really are? Okay, what's the story of Little Red Riding Hood? What are some of the morals? What are some of the basic points? We don't have to go through the entire thing lest it's become an hour-long podcast. Well, she goes to visit her grandmother and she goes off the path. She gets tricked by the wolf. Okay. Um, That's probably too much of a summary. (laughs) She's sent to visit her grandmother who is in good health? No. No. She's sick. So her grandmother's sick. Little Red Riding Hood is taking things to her. Wine, which is interesting, right? (laughs) It's like, wow, that makes the grandmother better. Probably an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then she should be taking her grape juice. (laughs) Um, this is actually grandma's intervention. Yeah. <laughs> a one person po- put it on poor little red riding hood to do well, the intervention the all her. alone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he intervened in a different way, didn't <laughs> yeah, he? Exactly. Okay, so we have little red riding hood going to care for her ill grandmother, right? And she encounters in the forest very early on in the story a wolf, right? What happens next? Hogan. The uh, the wolf tells her. Tells her to go pick flowers, I think, for her grandma, and, um, like, distracts her. Okay, he so definitely that... distracts her. But how about before before he tells her to pick flowers, Winnie, what does oh. he do? I'm oh, sorry, I'm going to give it to Winnie. <laughs> Asks her what she's doing, right? Yeah, he, he, very, he just, very like, basic. Hey, introduces you? himself. Yeah. How are you? She doesn't pause to reflect, wait, a wolf is talking? Where are you going? <laughs> Where are you going? What are you doing? And she... Does what? She tells him yeah. what, everything. everything without questioning. Yeah, she <laughs> enters into a conversation with What's him. What's right? your social security number? <laughs> social security. All right. What do the Grimm brothers tell us the reason she did this? Why did she enter into conversation with a wolf? Oh, because she doesn't know how bad he is. She, she was never taught and therefore doesn't know what a wicked beast he was. The translation that I have says she doesn't know what a wicked beast he was. So if she didn't know, she enters into conversation assuming... That he's like a friend. He asks a question, oh, I answer, right? That is critical to everything else that unfolds because then, as Hogan said, she gets distracted by flowers, picking flowers, right? And while she's picking flowers, what does the wolf do? He heads to grandma's house. To have a picnic? Mm. Well, <laughs> oh, no. a little bit. Uh, yeah, a bit of a picnic. <laughs> Maybe not a picnic with grandma, but a picnic... Of grandma. Of grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Let's eat grandma. Yeah. Okay, so... Little Red Riding Hood comes to her senses kind of when her hands get too full with flowers, right? So she goes to Grandma's house. And when she enters Grandma's house, first of all, key detail, the gate is unlocked, right? And the door is open to crack. Is Little Red Riding Hood suspicious? Nope. No, not at all. So she enters the bedroom. And she sees in the bed what? The wolf. And the wolf. She sees a wolf. But does she think it's a wolf? Nope. No. no. Winnie, it's what does she what does she notice? Well, not wearing sheep's clothing, a wolf wearing Winnie what? Uh, her grandma's clothing. Her grandmother's clothing. And so Little Red Riding Hood believes the wolf to be her grandma. Her grandmother. Except for three different uh possible changes to grandma. What? Her what big ears you have, she says. What big ears you have? Then she moves to uh her nose, I think. Her nose and then the third one. And then one is, what big teeth you have. And at that point, the wolf does what? All the better to eat you with, he says. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I like to think that the wolf was probably surprised at how gullible 
Little Red Riding Hood was. First she says, Grandma, what big eyes you have? And he's like, ooh, she's tricked by this. Grandma, what big ears you have? And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> she doesn't recognize me. <laughs> and by the time she gets to what big teeth, he says, I was like, oh, what the heck? Let's get this over with, right? <laughs> the better to eat you with, my dear. Okay, so depending on the account, it covers what happens next. The wolf eats Little Red Riding Hood. Some stories say that the woodsman comes in, they cut open the wolf, right? Little Red Riding Hood comes out and they, she promises never again to do this. But let's talk briefly about the distinction between Little Red Riding Hood and the Huntsman. Okay, the Huntsman, unlike Little Red Riding Hood, what did he know about the wolf? He knows how bad the wolf is. Yeah, story is very clear that a Huntsman understood. And because he understood what a wicked character the wolf was, when he walks by Grandma's house, well, first of all, it's another important detail. He walks by Grandma's house. He already has a concern for her, right? He's already watching out for her and making sure that there's not danger. So he notices something unusual that the doors are open. So he goes in, possibly at risk of his own life, not knowing what he's going to face. And he finds, of course, the wolf very fat, right? <laughs> and no grandmother. So he immediately puts two and two together, comes up with four. Grandma's in the wolf, and he does the courageous thing. But he also does the thing that gives Grandma the greatest chance of surviving, right? He could have blown the wolf away with his gun, but instead he what? Cut it open. He cuts it open with scissors. With scissors. Isn't that funny? <laughs> While the wolf is sleeping, he cuts it open with scissors. The wolf's in a food coma. All right, so why, why is this Little Red Riding Hood, what does this tell us about only when you believe what is true, which is our hypothesis, can you see things as they really are? What did Little Red Riding Hood believe, and what did the huntsman believe, and how did it affect their their response to what was really happening. Well, I think Little Red Riding Hood just kind of was like, I mean, obviously it's a fairy tale, but in the fairy tale, she believed she was in like a fairy tale world and everything's good and everybody's like, you know, nice and stuff. So nothing bad could happen. What did, um, it's actually, you bring up a point which we need to reference. Fairy tales, who, who was the one, Roger, that said fairy tales are more than true? G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton said something like this. I understand from my daughter that it's paraphrased, but the point is, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten, right? And so I think that's why I love Little Red Riding Hood and some of the other fairy tales, because they really give us truth, mm -hmm. right, in the form of a fairy tale. So Little Red Riding Hood, Hogan, she believes something about the wolf that isn't true, right? She believes the wolf is good, whereas Winnie... The huntsman believes what about the wolf? He knows the true identity of the wolf and how the wolf really is. So he responds accordingly to that. Yeah. So among the more frequently cited morals of the story of Little Red Riding Hood, people typically think of it as a, well, stay the course, right? Don't disobey your mother. But the fundamental lesson taught in this classic Grimm Brothers tale is one that your belief informs your vision. And that only when you believe what is true can you see things as they really are. Let me illustrate this concept further. Imagine if we're standing on a beach in California, watching the sun set to our west. Why does that have to be California? Because I'm looking to the west. <laughs> Hogan, don't mess up my analogy. Yeah, if you were standing on the east, it'd have to be a sun, sunrise. sunrise. And all of the ocean is still, save for one oil tanker heading away from us toward the horizon, Right. There's no doubt that you and I are watching the same thing because we talk about it. Let's assume for our story that there's no one else on the beach. 
The only difference is, in our story here, you believe the world is round, whereas I happen to believe the world is flat. This has consequences. For while you have no apprehension about the continued journey of the oil tanker beyond our view, I become paralyzed with fear, believing the ship will fall off the horizon. You know the ship will come back. But I lobby Congress to pass legislation forbidding ships from sailing toward the horizon. Never content with one act of social benevolence, I would then seek to ban children from playing in the ocean, worried that an undertow might suck them away from their parents and send them to their death over the edge of the earth. Then, by the way, who would be left to contribute to Social Security and wear the brown shirts? But I digress. And like all do-gooders, I would then seek new regulations effectively outlawing the banning of ships. Because if you don't build ships, they can't be put in the ocean. And if ships can't be put in the ocean, they can't approach the horizon. And of course, if they don't approach the horizon, they don't fall off the horizon. All of this harm resulting, however, not because I was unable to see what you had seen, Right? Remember, we were both standing on the ocean seeing the same thing. But because I believe things that were not true. The turning point in Little Red Riding Hood drives home this message. Little Red Riding Hood had no problem seeing the wolf. But because she did not believe he was a wicked beast, she did not fear him. And everything that followed was a predictable disaster. Number one, she entered into dialogue with one whose designs were only evil and foul play. She disclosed to her enemy detailed, confidential information about her destination. Remember, she says, you know, you, you must know the place. And she talks about the hedges and basically gives him, if, if they had Google Maps, gives him directions to find her grandmother's house. <laughs> which put both herself and her grandmother in grave danger. She allowed herself to become distracted by shiny objects and good deeds. In this case, picking flowers on the path, right? Coming only to her senses by virtue of her personal limitations when she couldn't carrying any more flowers. And so obstinate was she in her false beliefs about the nature and character of the wolf that even upon arriving at Grandma's house and seeing the wolf in the bed, Little Red Riding Hood failed to imagine the danger right before her eyes. Not once, not twice, but three times. Whereas you and I and any normal child would have immediately detected the wicked beast dressed in Grandmother's gown, Red Riding Hood perceived only eyes, ears, and a mouth of abnormal size, dismissing the imminent danger not because of poor vision, for the beast was right before her, but rather because she did not believe the wolf was wicked. She could not therefore conceive that what she thought was her poor, ill, and lovable grandmother with perhaps some oversized features was actually a beast with completely different aims. Now, we can draw many parallels between Little Red Riding Hood and the circumstances of our day, but let me give you just one. Bad decisions are not the result of lack of intelligence. And by intelligence, I mean information. Most people have access today to the same data. But people unquestionably wear masks, for example, not because there's a lack of medical and scientific research demonstrating the foolishness of blocking one's access to oxygen, and capturing manifold bacterial and mold colonies that lead to life-threatening infection, nor do they wear masks because of some insufficiency of available evidence as to the ineffectiveness of a mask against a virus, how the pores on a mask are much too large to stop a virus, and that a virus goes in and out the side of the mask anyway. The large majority of people who wear masks today do it not because they are unable to see what we see or know what we know, they wear masks because they believe things that are not true. 
like Little Red Riding Hood, who believed that the wolf was of good character, many of our fellow Americans believed that COVID narrative was driven by good men, quote, experts who cared for them. Despite the abundance of evidence that the long associations between those so-called experts and things like gain-of-function research, the experts' narcissistic obsession with media coverage, and the experts' financial ties to the alleged cures for the disease that they insisted was unprecedented and more dangerous than anything we had faced in a century. Like Little Red Riding Hood, whose belief about the nature and character of the wolf prevented her from conceiving what might happen if she entered into discussions with the wolf. Americans' belief that these so-called experts were trustworthy prevented them from conceiving that they might have ulterior motives, that they may not actually care for us, that they could be lying to us, and that the coercion employed by the so-called experts, government, and big tech to keep Americans covered in masks and injected with experimental gene-altering drugs may have nothing to do with their health and everything to do with controlling them, whether for political purposes or for raw financial benefit. So the question we must ask when presented with claims by those in power, whether government power, corporate power, or media power, is not how much experience do they have. For most of the alleged experts have decades of experience. Nor should the aim of our activity be simply trying to persuade our friends, neighbors, and fellow citizens to see the facts or to see all of the data. As I explained before, nearly everyone has access to the same information, which, despite coordinated censorship by government and big tech, remains accessible to those willing to look for it. No, ladies and gentlemen, the first question, always, is whether the premise upon which all such claims are made is true. And for that answer, we must go first to Scripture, where we learn, among other things, about the nature of the perfect eternal creator God, the character of sinful, rebellious man, the beautiful order of the natural world, and of our need for redemption through Christ alone. As it says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We are not to accept the world's premise and then proceed from there to give an answer to what the world has identified as the problem. We must instead begin with the word in order to evaluate whether or not the claims of the world on any matter, are even true. Then, and only then, can we discern our duty. When we return, we'll take questions from our listeners. This is Jesus and the Meteorologist. So I wrote a little book all the way back in 2009 to address what was happening in America and what was likely to happen if we did not take corrective action. Unfortunately, too many of my predictions are coming true. The only surprise is the speed at which we have reached the precipice. The title of that little book is The Experts, and you can buy it on our webpage. Just go to JesusAndTheMeteorologist.com, click the image of the little brown book, and we'll send it to you for only $9.99. And then be sure to let me know what you think. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and I am your host. All right, so since this is only our second episode, I must humbly admit that we don't have a question to answer. So I'm going to ask a question of Roger, Hogan, and Winnie that 
I'm going to catch them off guard because they're not prepared for this question. Mm. But Roger, put your name tag up so I don't accidentally <clears throat> refer to you by your real name. Mm. All right. That would be bad. Don't speak all at once. But who or which team is the best team in the NHL? Roger. Mm. Going to have to go with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Hogan? In the last two years, the Lightning. Winnie? Well, I root for the Preds, but they're not doing so good this year. (laughs) All right, so interesting answers. So Roger said the Penguins, which, like me, I love the Penguins. But I asked, actually, which is the best team? And uh, if I were not holding to the truth, I could probably cling to the fact the Penguins are the best team. (laughs) Penguins, however, are merely my favorite team. Winnie then admitted that she likes the Predators, but also acknowledged that the Predators are not the best. Hogan actually gets the goal horn. Which, by the way, to our listeners, that's the Pittsburgh Penguins goal horn, not just any goal horn. By the way, that is the best goal horn in the NHL. (laughs) Um, Because he rightfully said that the Tampa Bay Lightning, having won the last two Stanley Cups, are clearly the best. Um, But it brings up an interesting point, and that is, if I were to persist in my belief that the Penguins are the best, much as I would love them to be the best, and, and they do have more cups than Tampa Bay, and five, they have three, two more cups than Tampa Bay, who has three. They have five more cups than the Predators, who have how many, Winnie? Oh, <laughs> Zero, I think. Zero. Was. But it's, um, what have you done for me lately? Then the Penguins haven't done it lately, just like the Predators. In fact, ironically, my family and I always talk about how the Predators and the Penguins seem to have, over the last couple of seasons, had mirror image um, playoff experience. If the Penguins went two rounds, the Predators went two rounds, and they were out. This goes all the way back to 2017 when they played each other in the finals. Penguins won, of course. But other than that, the next year they both went out in the second round. The year after that, they both went out in the play-in round. That was the COVID year. And then this past season that ended in, in the summer of 2021... They both lost in the first round. So I don't know why that keeps happening, but we had an old neighbor that was a big Predators fan. We used to talk about, oh, no, Predators lost. It means Penguins are going to lose. Predators won. Yeah, Penguins are going to win. You missed 2019. They both went out in the first round. And then 2020, oh, right. they both went out in the that's right. round. 2019, that's right. 2018, they went second round. 2019, first round. 2020, they lost in the playing round. Then 2021, first round. Ugh. But it does point to, a, if I were to insist that the Penguins were the best team, even though, objectively speaking, they're not, um, I would lose a lot of credibility, and I certainly wouldn't be able to make a co- any kind of coherent argument as to why that's the case. All I could rely upon are my preferences and my opinions. And yet, don't we see that today in our culture? People pick things that they like, and what do they call it? What's one of the phrases that's popular in our culture? Another way of expressing their opinion, but they kind of cloak it as something different. Oh, like saying, what's your truth? What is your truth, right? Or, or my, my lived experience or truth to me, right? All of these things are just another way of saying, what's your opinion, right? What's your biographical background, right? By my lived experience. Has nothing to do with objective truth, which sits apart from anybody's particular experience. So fair question, hockey? Yeah, me. I think it was pretty fair. That's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again to our students, our producer, Rachel, and to all of our listeners and supporters. 
In the never-ending battle for hearts and minds, we aim to find and develop young men and women who, like the men of Issachar, understand the times and who know what to do. And how can we know what we're to do unless we believe what is true? My name is Kevin Kukichi, and you have been listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists.